Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And we're so excited today to be talking about another female first, which means we are once again joined by our good friend, Eves. Hi, Eves. Hey, y'all. Hey, Eves, did you eat the rest of the cheesecake? Yes. Oh, my yes. gosh. Very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was gone by, like, it was gone the next day. And it was very delicious. But I think it's, we helped because I definitely took some home. I was like, I'm going to take a little bit home as well. <laughs> and so, then the little bit kept getting a bit bigger. <laughs> <laughs> so when you didn't have a whole cake, but I did think about that. And I was like, huh. I wonder how long, how much of it is gone. I'm sure, well, it's been a it's, month, so yeah. surely to God, all of it's gone. But I'm just saying. But, I like, oh yeah. I, I like, I really want to go back and get some. I'm not on that side of town, but I'm like, I need to take a trip over there just to get some cheesecake. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fully support you do. this. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have a random question for you, Eves. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite season? I would say summer because I've been saying summer for a long time, but I think that might be like auto-ingrained in me as a person who's conditioned to not have school during the summer. Uh, uh-huh. But I love hot weather. So like, I've thought about it. I'm like, I feel like that late springtime is like the temperature's really nice. Then everything's in bloom during spring. Spring is also, I'm like a spring baby. I was born right on the cusp of winter spring, right at the beginning of spring. So it's a really beautiful season, but I still think summer is it because the sweltering heat is... It's just something about it that makes me just, like, really appreciate everything to do with, like, the outdoors and just, like, be in awe of everything, even though it's kind of oppressive sometimes, the heat. (laughs) But, yeah, I say summer. I would say my official answer is summer. Okay. So this is, like, your prime time. It is, yes. Wow. I think you're one of the few people that I know would actually say summer, especially of those of us in Georgia where summer feels like it's half the year. Yeah. With all the bugs and humidity. But wow. Yeah. Okay. Right. There is also, yes, there are a lot of elements of it being summer that I don't like. Being the bugs that you just mentioned, like the spiders (laughs) that build their webs overnight. I'm always running into spiders in my yard and just like cursing all the bugs that are out. But right. It's, it's worth it to me. Like the pros outweigh the cons. Mm. I like it. Mm-hmm. I say this because I'm being bitten right now. I just found two new bug bites on my leg. So that means there's a bug inside my house eating me <laughs> as we speak. They're rude like that. They really they are. They are so rude. <laughs> Bugs are rude. You're right. <laughs> what about y'all? <laughs> oh, I, I used to love summer, but I think once I was not a student and that didn't mm-hmm. mean you have like three months off. Uh, that changed. Now I love fall. And that's kind of why I was asking is because we're in like, in Georgia, the distinction isn't quite as clear or as uh, early as it is for a lot of other places. But we're kind of on that place where a lot of people are talking about fall, but it's still like 90 degrees outside. Yeah. Right. So, and we were just talking about how, you know, dates and times still feel strange. So it's just odd to me that people are talking about a lot of fall things now, and some people are already doing their Halloween <laughs> shopping. Just cracks me up. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, but it's 90 degrees <laughs> at this current yeah. moment. Yeah, but the, the <laughs> exactly. nights, though, the nights are where you can tell a little bit of a difference. It's starting to get a little bit more cool, cooler at night. Yeah. Cool-ish. Cool-ish. Yeah. And people have been think- asking me about horror movies. They're like, when are you going to start your horror <laughs> movies? And I'm like, well, uh, I don't really stop. Now? But, uh, <laughs> Because this time last year, Samantha, you and I watched Hocus Pocus. It was my birthday. 
And we <laughs> were like, let's kick off this Halloween I made you watch season. The Heathers, too. You which did. Which is a little more dark, like, fall slash Halloween-ish. You did. For sure. Apparently, my niece, who is 20 years younger than me, her and her friend group dressed up as The Heathers. And I was like, how do you, oh. how do you even know? How do you know this? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, I am a fall person as well. I think that has everything to do with, there's something about, for me, school started actually in fall, like in that mm-hmm. time frame. Mm-hmm. So I think of the newness of that. My birthday, other people's birthdays, typically that I know are in the fall area. And then, yeah, Halloween was not a big part of my life growing up. It's like, I like the candy bit, but I don't love the dressing up bit. Like That's still not something that I love, mainly because I'm not creative and I don't, invest a lot of money in it because I'm like, I'm not paying $200 to dress up as this character for one day. Of course, I'm not in that world. So that that's all new, but like horror movie and all of that, definitely. But I'm also like you where I can watch that whenever and I enjoy it. <laughs> and I just right. want to have more of it. But I love cardigans like nobody's business. And I will wear the hell out. I'm still wearing a poncho during summer. So I will keep wearing them. But knowing that it's appropriate during this time makes yeah. me even happier. Yeah. Coats are my favorite article of clothing. And it used to be a running joke among my friends is that I have more coats than like anything else. Like I don't have <laughs> enough coats for the number of like pants or anything. Like I just love a good coat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, Eve's... Okay. This is a quick question. Samantha and I have talked about it a lot, so we don't need to answer. But out of curiosity, before we get into this episode, were you ever interested in going into the medical field? No, never. <laughs> like not- No, never. Short answer. Um, <laughs> yep. Samantha and I both were very briefly, but, uh, well, I won't say very it briefly. It died that very not quickly. True. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought I had but, a plan, but it died very quickly. My, I was like... Almost throughout all of my primary education, I thought I was going to go into medical field. But then yeah. high school, like senior year, I was like, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty, I was staunch writing from the beginning. And it, it awesome. pretty much never, <laughs> never swayed from that. I mean, I mean, that's, that's not completely true because I was into fashion for a minute. I had other tangential things, but like writing was always the central focus. Right. Sure. Yeah. But props awesome. to y'all for being interested in in medicine and medical fields because <laughs> it is, a, like, it's fascinating to me, but it is above me. <laughs> That's for sure. It's a lot. It's a lot. Samantha and I hung out with somebody this weekend who was in the nursing field and just hearing her talk about it. And she was, like, taking tests over it. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, that is difficult. But the reason I wanted to ask is because the first you bought for us today was involved in the medical field. So who did you bring for us, Eves? Yes. So today we're going to be talking about Charlotte Edith Anderson Montour, who usually is just referred to as Edith Montour. She was the first Indigenous Canadian woman to become a registered nurse. And she was reported to be the first First Nations woman to gain the right to vote in a Canadian federal election. For some reason, my mind is totally blanked and was like, you know, you know when you hear a word and you think, that's correct, isn't it? And then your brain is like, is it? And I was like, Canadian? Yeah. <laughs> it's not Canadia. And then I was like, no, but it is Canadian. Because <laughs> the I is thrown in there. You have to right. throw the I in before the A. Right. So I can see how but that would not, be confusing. It's not like I don't use that word or see that word regularly. I don't know why my brain just flipped out about that. <laughs> 
very interesting story reading into this one. Um, and Samantha, you were talking about you were reading some of the journal entries mm-hmm. that you found. So this one is a, just another fascinating story that I'm kind of angry I hadn't heard about earlier. Right. Yeah, and it's really not a ton that's very easily accessible out there about her. I think that's because there's not much documentation of it. But it's definitely worth talking about, you know, we haven't really gotten into that many Indigenous Native American firsts on the show. So I think it's great that we're going to be able to get into one today. And I, I think we also, we haven't, we've, like, Marianne, Shaq, Carrie, I feel like we've gotten into some Canadian history, but mm-hmm. I'm happy to bring that to the table today because I, I like to, you know, try to keep a variety of people from different cultural backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and nationalities. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And to... I didn't know anything about her either. So, yeah, I'm really excited to get into her story today. So I think that the history of women nursing in North America, and specifically the history of Indigenous women in nursing in North America and Canada, is like a very rich history. Something that I didn't know much about, but it seems like like a place that you can really delve deep into because there are so many tendrils that it connects to, you know, the history of war, which we'll get into in this episode, the history of medical practices and healing practices in indigenous communities, and also medicinal practices themselves. It's just, it, it, it touches so many different things. So I think it's really fascinating to talk about, you know, think about those different histories all melded into one. And Edith Montour is definitely a part of that. Uh, she was born on April 10th, 1890 in Oshuiken in Six Nations of the Grand River, which is the largest First Nations reserve in Canada, which is located in southwestern Ontario. So it's the only First Nations reserve in North America that includes all six Haudenosaunee nations, which is it's an alliance among the six Native American nations that sometimes called the Iroquois Confederacy. Edith Montour was a member of the Mohawk Nation. And the Mohawk are the easternmost nation in Haudenosaunee territory. So Edith was the youngest of eight children. She went to day school in the reserve, and she got her high school diploma at Brantford Collegiate Institute. And once she graduated, she tried to apply to nursing schools in Ontario, but she wasn't accepted to any of those schools So this is where we get into the Indian Act in Canada, which was passed in 1876. And it's still in effect today, though. It's been through many iterations, many amendments. So it doesn't look like it looked in 1876. Obviously, a lot about it has changed in that that time period. But it defines who is a so-called Indian, which was who had Indian status under the Act. It gave the federal government authority over registered Indians and over reserve communities. And it's part of just a longstanding effort to assimilate First Nations people into Canadian society by devaluing their distinct political, economic, and cultural practices. So I think we talked about this before, but a lot of similar things happening in the United States as well. Um, when it comes to efforts to assimilating, I think we may have mentioned before boarding schools and things that were specifically built and enacted in policy to 
remove and strip Native Americans and Indigenous peoples of their of their own practices, their language, their ways of dressing, all of the things, um, and to make them, quote-unquote, less savage, not my words, but less savage and more civilized. And this was the case with the Indian Act in Canada as well. So as part of it, women were barred from voting and running in chief and council elections under the Act, and they also had to deal with the issue of enfranchisement, which in this case is the process by which Indigenous peoples would lose their Indian status under the Act and become full Canadian citizens. And that's related to this conversation in many ways, but it's related to education, specifically where any Indians who got a university degree or became a professional, like a doctor or lawyer, would lose their status as an Indian. Enfranchisement meant that Indigenous peoples would have to throw away their cultural and legal identities and couldn't pass along their Indian status to their children. So First Nations people were enfranchised for getting a university education. They also were for things like serving in the Canadian Armed Forces, for marrying non-Indian men, and for leaving reserves for long periods, so on and so forth. And I'd also like to just call out that Indigenous peoples have also ha- always had their own caregiving practices in their own communities. So I don't want to make it seem like the history of Indigenous healers in Canada starts with Edith Montour. Like she's one part of the long history of healing practices within Indigenous communities and also of like in a line of Indigenous nurses and people who acted as midwives and all these sort of different caretaking. There's also accounts of Indigenous women who served as nurses and midwives to colonizers. So it's not like she is the beginning of all of this conversation, but she is a pioneer in in the history of Indigenous women who nursed in this way in Canada and the United States, because she's, as we'll get into, she was in the United States for a bit or came to the United States. But on top of the assimilating policies, suppressing Indigenous healing practices, Indigenous women were also largely barred from nursing programs in Canada until the early to mid-1900s. So Montour herself was barred from pursuing professional training in Canada. She was rejected from schools without even getting interviews. And so many Indigenous women would go to the U.S. to get professional training. So that's exactly what she did. She turned to the United States where she was accepted to and began attending New Rochelle Nursing School in New York. She graduated and became a registered nurse in 1914, which is the first. So she became the first Indigenous woman who's a registered nurse in Canada. So when she was asked why she became a nurse, she just said it was something to do. The way that it seems like it's been explained by family members is that like she kind of downplayed her achievements and like the things her status as a pioneer, you know. So, yeah, she was then hired as a nurse at a private school in New Rochelle. And she joined the war effort for World War I in 1917. And in that, she joined the Westchester County Unit B of the American Expeditionary Forces Army Medical Corps. So after more training in New York, she left for France in February of 1918 She stopped in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and she arrived 
in France on March 6th. So just for some numbers, during World War I, there were more than 2,800 nurses who served in the Canadian Army Medical Corps, or the CAMC. So service in the CAMC required women to be white, to have British citizenship and quote-unquote high moral character, physical fitness, and to be between the ages of 21 and 38. So a number of Indigenous women did serve as nurses in the Army Nurse Corps and the American Red Cross stateside and overseas in France during the war. There are 12 Indigenous women who have been identified as doing so, but more is thought that more of them did actually serve. It's just that the record keeping isn't there for who those people were. But as we can imagine, like there were definitely more. There were definitely more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Edith volunteered and worked as a nurse at Base Hospital 23 in Vitel, France for more than a year. She was responsible for treating soldiers who were shot or gassed. And she sometimes worked at other medical centers in France as well. Which you mentioned earlier that, Samantha, you read some of her diary entries. Yeah. Yeah. She kept a journal. What did you read? So essentially, I've only gotten through it a little bit, but it kind of reads as if it's like a 1920s, uh, 1910s kind of movie when you're in New York and living that life. She talks about Mm -hmm. getting lunch at Gimbel's. Uh, she talks about going to Hoboken, going out with friends, writing letters to people, saying farewell. So she was prepping while working there, prepping to leave, apparently, from what I could gather. Because they started in 1918. Mm-hmm. So the diary was actually uh, handed down through family and her daughter, Helen, who she also has a friend named Helen in the uh, diary we read. But her daughter, Helen, kept it and preserved it. And it was so fragile that they had actually sent it off to have it typed up. And they uh, gave it to all of the descendants, all of her descendants, so they could have a copy to see what it was like. I saw that they sent it off to the Modern Literature and Culture Research Center in Toronto as well. Yep. Yes. The thing that I really liked about this, of course, as y'all already know, I really love like the just reading these people's stories and the fact that s- some people had the like the thought or just were interested in recording their own stories, which we have from her, right. which I'm just grateful for because right. she had a diary that we even have access to because she didn't have to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was her, it was just before she died is when her granddaughter transcribed the diary. And thankfully they did make it available to us, the portions that they did make available. But it was, she died not that long after. Lived a long time, by the way. <laughs> what she did. She had a fulfilling 105. life. Yeah. 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 But the diary is, yeah, it's it's really cool to see. Like, I I liked how much she talked about the weather. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I feel yes. like, she's talking about it so much. She's yeah. just like, sunny day, beautiful day again, <laughs> cloudy day. And I love that. <laughs> I also liked how she was just like, nothing happened today. Uneventful. I played yeah. cards. I wrote letters. Like, that's how I'm like, yeah, I get that. I stayed in. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one. Someone who made so much history just had a day where they just stayed in. Yeah. Yeah. So it made me feel a little better. Right. In wartime, yeah. she was like, ah, oh, uneventful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Didn't do much. It was cloudy today. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I do like, I, I like how mundane it is and, and just to you know, go through that kind of day by day with her, even though every day isn't in there. Like you said, it started, her entries began in January of 1918 and they ended after the armistice in 1919. 
And I will read a couple of entries from the journal too, just so y'all get to hear a little bit of what she wrote. So while she was serving there, she befriended a patient, one of the, I guess, more notable or one that's been talked about a lot in the articles that are written about her, Earl King, who was a soldier from Iowa. And she said in her diary entry on June 16th, 1918, quote, my pet patient, Earl King, who adopted me for his big sister, died this a.m. at 7.15, had hemorrhage at 3.15 a.m., The poor boy lost consciousness immediately. My heart was broken, cried most of the day, and could not sleep. That's the end of the quote. She was pretty upset when he died, and she wrote to his parents, and his parents visited her. She visited them, and they struck up kind of a friendship. So that's one of the more, I guess, things that she didn't really write a ton about specific soldiers in her diary entries. And... She, in a later interview, she did say about her experience in the war, we would walk right over where there had been fighting. It was an awful sight. Buildings in rubble, trees burnt, spent shells all over the place, whole towns blown up. She didn't really talk a ton about discrimination that she faced or the difficulties of war. But she does say in her last journal entry, quote, When we looked over the shell-torn fields and think of the millions of dollars in property destroyed to say nothing of the tremendous loss of life, we cannot wonder that in France they bury the dead facing the north. Even in death, they dare not turn their backs on Germany. A bit of sentiment, of course, but who can blame them? So Edith returned to North America and soon went back to the Six Nations Reserve in Canada, where she married Claybrand Montour in 1920. They had five children, which were Bud, Helen, Ron, Don, and Gilbert, although Gilbert died as an infant in 1929. She continued her nursing career, and she worked as a nurse and a midwife at the Lady Willingdon Hospital on the reserve until 1955. And in 1939, she was elected honorary president of the Oshuiken Red Cross. So yeah, her nursing, she continued to do what she did, which was nurse on the reservation. And as the 1917 Military Service Act had given wartime nurses the right to vote, that's where that other first came in, where she was the first female status Indian and registered band member to gain the right to vote in a Canadian federal election. Although Indigenous women in general, weren't able to legally vote federally without losing their Indian status until 1960. And her son mentioned that he remembers other veterans encouraging her to vote in federal elections with them. Her daughter, who Samantha brought up earlier, Helen, was a founding member of the National Aboriginal Nurses Association, which is now known as the Canadian Indigenous Nurses Association, But yeah, Edith continued to serve until she retired. And in 1996, like Samantha said, they transcribed the diary. And Edith herself died on April 3rd, 1996, which is just before her 106th birthday. And she was buried on the Six Nations Reserve. And there is a memory of her and... The Edith Montreux Avenue in Brantford, Ontario is named after her. And there is a park there that's named after her as well. So she is 
what I'm trying to say is she is recognized for her work and her pioneering status as an Indigenous woman in nursing in Canada. Yeah. And I think so much of this story is emblematic of what we were talking about in our cheesecake champagne celebration of these first of somebody who, like you said, she was like, well, something to do. Like she wasn't in it necessarily, like was kind of shy about talking about her first or, you know, was just wasn't talking about it that much, but was just doing it. And then having, I love that she kept this journal that we can read. That's something I personally really enjoy is when people are, yeah, even if there's nothing really to report, you report it anyway. <laughs> I'm just like, yep. You know, because I think it gives you a full picture of their experience because we do like build up, oh, here's their first, but there's a whole life and a person behind that that did have plenty of mundane days or did go to, you know, gimbals for lunch. <laughs> like it was exciting. Yeah. So I really enjoy that aspect uh, looking to her story. Yeah, me too. I'm really appreciative of it. I mean, and happy that like, you know, the family made it available for us to be able to read and also just, it wasn't that long ago when she passed away. So just to think about this first happening in, in such recent history and to know that she also has a living legacy is, is nice to know in that, you know, her work by people like me and, you know, the three of us is still being uncovered. And, you know, we can talk about it within the framework of, the rest of Indigenous American and North American history, just like it's involved in so much. So yeah, I think it's super cool. Yeah, for sure. And that, that was interesting too, where sometimes I'll hear it first and I, I'm trying to like have a context before I look it up. Like, when was that? And I'm like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, once again, Eves, we brought a great story. Thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. Yeah. Is there anything else before we wrap up no. that you want to touch on? That's all. Thank you again for having me. Always love being here. So, Oh, yes. Could y'all imagine, though? I have to ask, like, do you think she imagined that we would be reading and it would be published, her journal? Because for me, my thought is, oh, my God, I'd die. <laughs> Don't read my journal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've had this conversation before. Yeah, I don't want people to read my diary. <laughs> right. I don't. I was I, I was thinking about that when I was reading hers. And yeah, you know, I know there's some stuff that was omitted. Right. I hope so. You need. Yeah. I, I wonder to what degree there was self censorship as well when she was actually writing. Right. Her diary. Right. Of course, she yeah. knew she was going to war. I know that. Like, yeah, I think you'd already covered the fact that you know people who went off as. The assumption is you're not, you're probably not going to come back if you're going to be right. there. And so perhaps she was doing this in order to have a, a lasting memory for someone to keep that record mm-hmm. so she could exist. But yeah, in my head, I'm like, please don't read my diaries. Don't don't read my journal. <laughs> I got to keep that locked. Like, don't, don't, don't read it. They're so embarrassing. <laughs> exactly. We've talked about that. <laughs> We've talked about that. When I was growing up, I had a diary and it had like a little key mm-hmm. and I would, you know, lock it. That you could have just like picked that lock <laughs> so easy. I think you could have yeah. just like yeah ripped yeah, it. You could like, have the little strap that went across the journal. Yes, right. yes. <laughs> but it was all like this pet has died again today. Like I lost another pet. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't ready oh. for you to mention that one. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so for those who are interested in finding the actual diaries uh, as they put it up, it, I found it on wardiaries.ca mm-hmm. if anybody wants to go and read. Because it is, it feels very, I feel like I'm, I'm understand, like without knowing any context of where she's at, it feels like I'm there a little bit with her crew of nurses as they're going about their day. Because she makes sure to talk about all of the nurses around her or people around her and sharing her experiences. So she should definitely go read it. But it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I unfortunately burned my diary, but... Um, <laughs> I wish I had. Really it. didn't want anybody to read yours then. I really, and it, you know, looking back, I'm like, it was fine. It's okay. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> they could laugh at my boy angst any day. <laughs> and yeah, that's the thing. They're, my diaries aren't this well partitioned, you know, like, right. Right. I, everything is in there. So while you might be able to read one page, the next one is something I probably wouldn't want to share with anybody. (laughs) See, that's why you need a good, you need a good friend to go through it first and be like, okay, she'd be fine with this. Can't burn this forever. But like this section's okay. Yeah. Mine had illustrations in it and everything. Oh Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Well, thanks so much as always, Eve, for being here. Where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at notapologizing. Also on Twitter at Eve's Jeff Coat. Um, you can go back and listen to episodes of This Day in History class, which talks about people in history and different events on days in history by the day. And on the podcast Unpopular, which is about people in history who were persecuted for the actions that they were taking. Yes. And that's all. Also. On this very show. Also, many, many, (laughs) many episodes of Female First on this here very show called Stuff Mom Never Told You. We're guesstimating that it's 26. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A few. Yeah. We'll get ready for our 50th. More cheesecake, more champagne. Absolutely. I've got to upgrade it. Maybe just do a whole like tier of cheesecakes or something. (laughs) Yes. Each time the cake gets bigger. Fireworks (laughs) coming out of the top. Our boss will love us. Our boss will love us. Well, we did have kind of a big send-off with the champagne bottle, the last one. True. (laughs) It went off while recording. So, yes. (laughs) And listeners, if you would like to find us, you can. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 